Hello fellow heathens and history buffs, this is Damien, the tall, friendly atheist dad and host of the Tall, Friendly Atheist Dad podcast, where I do interviews, topical discussions, and I even sometimes go on rants. So when you're finished with the history of religions and their gods with the skeptical ghost heathen, come on over and have a listen. I'll see you in a couple of hours' time. Hi, this is Dave Ramsey, author of Speaking of God, We Don't Know Shit. A former minister reflects on God and religion. This book is a rigorous, clear-eyed, and at times irreverent examination of religious practices and beliefs, including belief in God, from former Baptist minister turned iconoclast D.B. Ramsey. And you are listening to the history of religions and their gods, hosted by the skeptical ghost heathen. Are you ready to do this? History. A brief look back into time of ancient civilizations cultures, and the religious beliefs. Who were their gods and what was their purpose? Were they simply mascots that would lead a great army into war? Or did they serve as a way to control the masses? Or did they simply represent a people seeking legitimization? This show will analyze the history of religions and their gods through time beginning with the Babylonian supreme gods to Jesus Christ. And of course, the fallout of having gods in the 21st century. Hello, heathens, and welcome back to the show. All right, well, today is June 1st, it's 2022, and I hope you guys are all doing well out there, wherever you are and whoever you are, of course, because the heathen does not discriminate. But if you're still listening to the show, well, it's episode lucky 13 of season four, where we will pick up where we left off in the last episode with the book of One Enoch, the book of parables. Now, I hope you liked that one because it was really, really awesome, and it helps us understand the evolution of the Christian Messiah. Now we're going to review the fourth book. I'm skipping the third because it's all about cosmology and all that kind of stuff. And it's cool, but it doesn't really apply to our particular direction here. But this book, book number four, is called The Book of Visions or The Book of Dream Visions. So I'm going to entitle this uh, particular episode as Enoch's Visions. Or how about Enoch be tripping? (laughs) Anyway, this episode is actually super interesting. And it helps lend some understanding to the struggles and the issues of Second Temple Judaism and how some groups coped with it. Also, this book exposes some of the source material that this author, or authors, will pull from. So if you're ready to get inside of Enoch's head and see some talking animals, 
then you've come to the right place, guys. So, if you're all ready, hop in your time machines and let's do this. The Book of Dream Visions is the fourth book, the fourth installment of One Enoch, and it picks up after the astronomical book and begins with chapter 83 and ends with chapter 90. It contains a vision of history of Israel, all the way down to what the majority of scholars have interpreted as the Maccabean Revolt, which is dated by most to the Maccabean times around 163 to 142 BCE and probably one of the same authors who wrote The Watchers, the first book of Enoch. According to the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, they believe that it was written before the Genesis Flood around 2450 BCE. Now in this episode, it is my goal to understand and share with you guys, from a historical point of view, what exactly this author was trying to tell his or their audiences at the time. So it's very important that you are aware of the social, political, and especially the theological environment during the Second Temple period, specifically that 170 BCE and after. We need to know what this author has witnessed and is experiencing before we can move forward to interpret the text in this book. And it all begins with Daniel's prophecy in chapter 9. It's a story about greed, power, corruption, and murder. The authors for Daniel write in response to the following events of Second Temple Judaism, and there will be an entire cast of characters that will participate in the invention of a messiah or messianic frenzy. The setting of Daniel's prayer and Gabriel's prophecy it takes place at the end of the Babylonian exile. In the year is 587 BCE. But the exile did not eliminate sin. In fact, God's people, whether back in the promised land or scattered among nations, they still struggled to trust in this new monotheistic God and obey his commandments. The first objective of the 77s affirms this reality in Daniel's vision. God's people will continue to sin for 70 years. During the reign of Antiochus, 4, 175 to 164 BCE, Jason illegitimately bought the office of high priest and then corrupted it, among other ways, slaughtering those who resisted his progressive policy, as seen in 2 Maccabees 5-6. And then we have Menelaus, then ordered a large price to Antiochus IV and murdered the true high priest Onias III. Before that, Simon had falsely accused Onias III as seen in 2 Maccabees 4, verses 1 through 2, in an effort to gain access to the temple treasury. In various ways, these men who, 1 Maccabees 1.11, calls lawless members of the conventional community of idolatry, wanted political power at the expense of the obedience to God and spiritual care of God's people. Consequently, the people who were supposed to be served by their leaders suffered neglect and wandered from their faith. As we see in 1 Maccabees 1.52, sin in the forms of false religion and uncharitable conduct characterized God's people 
throughout the 77s, which equates to 490 years. Now, the Seleucid Empire, it controlled Jerusalem during Onias' tenure. And Seleucus IV, Philopater, he reigned from 187 to 175 BCE. We're told that he was actually friendly to the Jews and even financed some of their expenses that were connected to the sanctuary. And according to two Maccabees, a Hellenizing official of the temple, his name was Simon, who was a member of the tribe of Benjamin, persuaded Seleucus through one of his officials, by the name of Heliodorus, to plunder the temple and steal all of its silver and all of its gold, all of its holy vessels. But the attempt was unsuccessful, and the court never forgave the high priest Simon. When Antiochus IV Epiphanes became king in 175 BCE, Onias was obliged to yield to his own brother Jason, who was in fact a worse and evil Hellenizer. It's often the minor characters that play a pivotal role in history. So it is in the story of Hanukkah as well, where every Jewish child knows the name of Judas Maccabeus and Antiochus Epiphanes. But who has heard of Heliodorus, intimate friend of the emperor Seleucus IV, or the chief minister of the empire, as he is called in the second book of Maccabees? As in all good battles over religion, money plays a very important part in it. And it certainly did in the case of the Seleucids, the Syrian Greeks versus the Maccabees. Emperors are always short on cash, and they use their powers of taxation to obtain it. But when times are hard, they pursue conquest and robbery to get their hands on it. That cold, hard cash. So it was with the Seleucid emperors and the events of the revolt that led to Hanukkah. But we have to go back to the year 187 BCE, when Seleucus IV succeeded the throne of his father, Antiochus III, a.k.a. Antiochus the Great. Now, Antiochus had seized Kole, Syria, later called Palestine, from the Ptolemies of Egypt, who had held it for hundreds of years after the death of Alexander the Great. The emerging Romans not happy to see an expansion of the Seleucid Empire, finally accepted it as irreversible, an irreversible fate. But they imposed a very heavy fine on Antiochus the Great in the year 188 BCE. But before that, the Jews of Jerusalem had welcomed Antiochus by opening the city gates to his army in 200 BCE. And in return, for which he had given them charter, a small charter that allowed them to live according to their ancestral ways, exempted the priests from taxes, and even made some royal contributions to the temple to upkeep and the sacrifices. But when Antiochus the Great died, Seleucus IV continued the benevolent policies of his father and the contributions to the temple. But Seleucus eventually ran out of money and was interested to learn that the temple, the Jerusalem temple, housed many great treasures. The game had been given away by Simon, Simon Bilga, who was the deputy of the high priest Onias III, and on bad terms with him, I might add. 
Simon had told the local Seleucid governor that the temple contained untold riches and suggested that these might be brought under the control of the king, as described in 2 Maccabees 3.6. When the news reached the king's ears, he selected his chief minister, Heliodorus, to go to the temple, remove all of the deposits. Now, not only did Heliodorus, you know, come, but he had the temerity to actually enter the sacred precinct, not permitted by a non-Jew. As he had his men approach the treasury, they were confronted by the terrible figure of a horse and a rider in golden armor, and flanked by two youths, who beat Heliodorus to the ground. He was then hauled out by his men out of the treasury, and he was actually saved. They did not kill him. But Onias III offered sacrifices of thanksgiving, and he also prayed on behalf of Heliodorus, who, recovered but empty-handed, went away acknowledging the power of the Almighty. This account in 2 Maccabees continues with Simon, the deputy who goes on to accuse Onias III of having frustrated the efforts of Heliodorus in emptying out the tomb. But in the year 175 BCE, Seleucus IV was murdered by his chief minister and friend, Heliodorus, the one who had failed to confiscate the temple treasures. Seleucus' infant son was the rightful heir, but he was murdered by Andronicus, an accomplice of Heliodorus, who had committed and ordered a secret murder so that he could seize the throne himself. In this, he was unsuccessful, as Antiochus, the energetic brother of Seleucus, who was returning from Rome, took advantage of the murder and installed himself as Antiochus for Epiphanes. The matter went even further. The legitimate high priest Onias III, who had been slandered by Simon to the new emperor, was supplanted by his own brother, Jason, who secured the position by bribing Antiochus. And then Jason started the process of Hellenization of Jerusalem. But before long, he was ousted by another usurper. And his name was Menelaus of Bilga, the brother of the treacherous and former Simon, who had brought the position by offering even greater bribes to Antiochus. But as he was unable to pay up, he resorted to looting gold vessels from the temple. This so enraged the ex-priest Onias that he traveled to Antioch to report to Menelaus, you know, to the emperor. But while he was awaiting in the audience to have his turn, he was assassinated in the crowd. And who carried out the dastardly deed? Andronicus, the accomplice of Heliodorus heavily bribed by Menelaus. Even the emperor was shocked and ordered Andronicus to be put to death and Heliodorus to be banished forever. The murdered priest was deeply mourned by both Jews and Greeks, and the king also, on his return, wept for him. The account continues with Menelaus not being punished and then being reinstated as the high priest at the Jerusalem temple. Meanwhile, Antiochus Epiphanes, he went on to invade Egypt, 
but his victories there were insignificant because of the growing power of Rome, which actually forced him to withdraw and impose further financial penalties upon the Seleucids. The negotiations in Egypt had taken time and gave rise to rumors that Antiochus had actually died in battle there. And the people of Jerusalem, they rejoiced, and they deposed the hated Menelaus. But they were very much surprised when Antiochus returned, alive. He took his revenge by killing thousands of Jews, and then, of course, reinstated his buddy Menelaus to the position of high priest once again. And Menelaus, he took his revenge by advising the emperor to discipline the Jews for, by forcing them to give up their ancestral customs, make them leave their traditions behind. No more reading of the Torah. It's time to adopt the Greek forms of sacrifice instead, including the worship of Zeus. This began the great clash between the Seleucids and their Jewish Hellenists on one side of the coin and the traditionalist Maccabees on the other. Now, the reason why we don't hear the story is that the rabbis, like the historian Josephus, did not know the great details given into Maccabees yet. One thing is clear, however, is that the role of Heliodorus had been crucial throughout the entire conflict. He was ready to murder for gain, and he was the first to try to rob the Jerusalem temple of its riches. Though not successful, his actions were copied by the high priest Menelaus and by Antiochus Epiphanes himself in 169 BCE, when he was forced to pay the Roman penalties. And it was this class of action that led to the so-called wicked emperor's final downfall, according to two Maccabees. Now, soon after going to Babylon to fight the Parthians in 164 BCE, he took to raiding the local temples in the neighborhood. He fell ill and eventually died there. In all this, he followed Heliodorus, who had been the first to attempt to rob the temple. Heliodorus murdered the emperor Seleucus IV in 175 BCE by their enabling Antiochus Epiphanes to come to the rightful throne. It was Heliodorus who, who connived the killing of the aging high priest, Onias III, who was trying to enforce Torah observance and bring Yahweh back to the temple, which enabled Menelaus to remain in office and continue to advise the emperor how to abolish the Jewish observances which historically we all know, which in turn led to the revolt of the Maccabees. The distinguished career of this Heliodorus started in attempt of robbery, continued in bloodshed, and ended in bloodshed, a pivotal role indeed in the story of Hanukkah. There's a passage in Daniel 8, verses 10 through 11, that says, Casting down some of the host and stars the prince of the host. Verse 926, Shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself? And 1122, And shall be broken, yea, also the prince of the covenant. And these verses are generally referred to be about the murder of Onias. 
And of course, an anointed one will come like a flood, as in Daniel 9. Of course, this author is pulling heavily from Noah Apocrypha. That's right, Noah's Ark, Noah's Flood. With the reference to the great flood, the great deluge, where Yahweh, the king of the Jews, killed every single man, woman, and child on the planet. Which our author for Enoch will also borrow heavily from. So I guess if you really want to know why Jesus Christ was invented and not a historical person, we can begin to look back at the character Heliodorus and the murder of Onias III. Now, before we continue into breaking down Enoch's dream visions, you can tell that my voice has changed. Well, it's still a little scruffy, but I got COVID, guys. And um, my little trip to Miami a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, that's right. I went to Miami, the hot spot of COVID <laughs> and all of its variants, too. And um, yeah, so anyway, so my voice should start clearing up as I'm delaying to record this whole thing. But I'm trying to record it in chunks before laryngitis completely sets in. So now we're going to dig into the dream visions specifically about the Great Flood. And this is specifically in chapters 83 to 84 of one Enoch's dream visions. And so the first dream vision of the Great Flood is where Yahweh, the God of the Jews, decides to flood the entire earth, killing every single human, beast, bird, and of course, Nephilim. Those big, evil, giant babies that were the result of horny angels having sex, sexual relations with human women. And then those angels teaching humans technologies that they weren't quite prepared yet. As they were teaching men how to make swords and shields. And of course, eyeliner and lipstick for the ladies to be able to seduce men into doing evil things. Now, of course... In this author's mind, the flood was absolutely necessary in God's eyes due to the degeneration of men, kings, and foreign nations. More than likely, Enoch as a whole was inspired by Daniel's reference to the flood myth, and Daniel 9, of course, and the misunderstanding of Daniel's Messiah, who was never supposed to be a celestial being taking on human evildoers. No, not at all. But then in chapters 85 all the way through 90, the second dream vision of Enoch, it's about the history of the world to the founding of the messianic kingdom where ultimately Enoch will sit at God's throne and will judge the living and the dead and the end of the world will soon follow thereafter. Now this chapter is another reference that Christian apologists will try to use in order to excuse me, prove that Jesus prophesied, you know, the, the, the flood and that he ruled the kingdom of God and has been a pre-existent being forever in heaven. Hey, Jesus was there in Genesis even before the flood. Don't you know that he was in the Old Testament too? He wasn't invented by the New Testament writers. But as we covered in the last episode, this Messiah, the Son of Man, is indeed Enoch. 
and not Jesus as told through the general uh, synoptics, the gospel accounts, or any of the Christian teachings thereafter. And then in chapter 6, we get the fall of the angels and the demoralization of all mankind. And it's this author's way of demonstrating from a historical, although mythical standpoint, the degeneration of humanity through the succession of oppressive kings that are represented by the Nephilim, the large giants, right, with baby brains, who were, in fact, ruling over Judea from the deportations of Babylon to the Greco-Syrian king that defiled the temple. And then we have these. Chapter 87 covers the advent of the seven archangels. 88, the punishment of the fallen angels by the archangels. And then um, chapter 89, verse 1 through 9, covers the great deluge and the deliverance of Noah. <clears throat> chapter 89, 10 through 27, from the death of Noah to the Exodus. Chapter 89, verse 28 through 40, Israel in the desert, the giving of the law, and the entrance into Canaan, which is all just regurgitating Old Testament bullshit, right? Then 89, 41 through 50, from the time of the judges to the building of the temple. So they're taking us back to some 537 to 516 when the first temple was rebuilt. 89, verses 51 through 67, the two kingdoms of Israel and Judea to the destruction of uh, Jerusalem. Then 89, verses 68 to 71, which is the first period of the angelic rulers from the destruction of Jerusalem to the return from captivity. So we're still focusing on um, Babylonian exile. Chapter 89, 72 through 77, which is the second period from the time of Cyrus the Great to that of Alexander the Great. And then chapter 90, verses 1 through 5, which is the third period from Alexander the Great to the Greco-Syrian domination. Then chapter 96 through 12, which is looked at as the fourth period, which is the Greco-Syrian domination, all the way to the Maccabean Revolt, which is when this book is actually being written. And then chapter 90, 13 through 19, which is the last assault of the Gentiles on the Jews. And then chapter 90, verse 20 through 27, is the judgment of the falling angels, the fallen angels, the shepherds, and the um, apostates, literally, who were the Jews who strayed from God during the Hellenistic period of Jerusalem, as well as the temple cult leaders and the four nations that were ruling the temple during that period. And then in chapter 90, verse 28, all the way through 42, we get the new Jerusalem and the conversion of the surviving Gentiles, the ones that God, Yahweh, did not kill. Then we get the resurrection of the righteous, the righteous Jews, of course, and then the Messiah. And then Enoch, he wakes from his dream and he cries. For he is the Messiah and he knows what he must do now. This, my friends, is the golden chapter that will inspire Paul in the mid-first century to give him the idea of this pre-existent Messiah who sits at the right hand of the Father, God, Yahweh, who must suffer an ordeal and die, but will rise again in three days to cast judgment upon the world. And then any day it happens, any day, any day now, this is Paul in a nutshell. And this is why Paul never mentions disciples 
Romans, a trial, family, or any of that. Because Enoch did not have any of that that was important to the narrative. There were two different stories. Paul had to reinvent the Messiah. Pulling from Enoch, pulling from Daniel, pulling from Isaiah, pulling from Psalms. Because the opposition that he had was a messianic group that was violent. They were bringing threat to cause war. That's it. Paul saw this happening. Paul saw the threat that was imminent between the Romans and the Jews, his fellow countrymen. Paul writes a story of the Messiah that had died. And this is who he writes about. And I don't doubt that the existing or the pre-existent letters that we no longer have of Paul may have actually said Enoch. Or since it was written in Greek, it probably just said Christ. Jesus wasn't added until probably added until another couple hundred years later. Because even the name Jesus is mythical. Savior Messiah. Anyway. Now, 1 Enoch, chapters 83 through 90, it's actually a new section of the book. Since there is a break from the astronomical speculations of the previous section, which we're leaving out as it really only applies to the Jewish calendar and the, you know, their understanding of the cosmos. Although it is related to chapter 82 as a continuation of Enoch's dialogue with Methuselah. That's right, Methuselah. His son, according to the book of Genesis, who lived to be 969 years old according to chapter 83, verse 1. So these two chapters serve as an introduction to what I like to call the animal apocalypse, which is basically a slightly veiled allegorical commentary of history all the way up to the Maccabean period in 167 BCE, which we will discuss and break down a little bit later. But Enoch, he basically starts to receive these mysterious visions and dreams sometime before he was married and still living with his grandfather, um, Mahala. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Mahalel. We'll call him Mahalel. It's spelled M-A-H-A-L-A-L-E-L. -L -L. Yeah, we're going to go with Mahalel. But anyway, you can see his name in Genesis 5, verses 12 through 17. But after Enoch receives a vision about this coming massive flood where God plans to kill every single man, woman, child, and beast? Well, he decides to share his dream with his grandfather, Mahalel. <laughs> and this is Enoch's very first vision. And like Samuel and Eli in 1 Samuel uh, 3, Enoch requires guidance from his grandfather to be able to understand exactly what the vision meant. He's an important character in the story. Now, within the world of the story, Enoch's vision refers to the imminent coming of the flood. That's right, the biblical flood. But the description goes way beyond the Genesis 7 narrative and to convey basically a picture of a cosmic collapse and a total annihilation. As in typical apocalyptic literature, Enoch is no different and creates this imagery of a flood by conflating the story with the 
ultimate judgment of God over all living things. Now, in 1 Enoch, 83 verses 3 through 4 says, <clears throat> in my best Enochian voice I can, even with my post-COVID voice, I saw in a vision the sky being hurled down and snatched and falling upon the earth. When it fell upon the earth, I saw the earth being swallowed up into the great abyss. The mountains being suspended upon mountains. The hills sinking down upon inside the hills. And tall trees being uprooted and thrown and sinking deep into the abyss. Now, Mahalalel explains to Enoch that because the sin of man is so great that the earth must sink into the abyss. Literally, primordial chaos. But he also explains that there is a possibility that because God loves humans so fucking much that he, with all his supernatural grace, would allow just a small few select humans to remain on earth while drowning everyone else. He then tells Enoch to go pray. Go pray for the earth, but not the murdered humans, as seen in 83, verses 6 through 9, which he does, as seen in 83, 10 through 11, and 84, 1 through 6. But Enoch's first, Enoch first decides to, 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 to praise God, Yahweh, the killer of all human things, and all animal things, and all things. And then he acknowledges all of his greatness for who he is and what he has done. 83, 2 through 4. Now these two verses seem to resonate with many texts found in the Hebrew Bible. Although it's remarkably similar also to Daniel chapter 2, verses 37 to 38. Which that author describes Nebuchadnezzar, the, the whore of Babylon, right? The, the Babylonian king that destroyed, that destroyed Jerusalem and levered, leveled down its temple, all in order to obtain the port of Byblos and its riches. And also in chapter 714, describing the role of the Son of Man, but also Isaiah 66, 1 through 2, heavens as God's throne and the earth as his footstool. Now let's go ahead and review those two chapters from Daniel. Daniel 2, 37-38, and Daniel 7, 14, to see where this author for Enoch was pulling some ideas from. And both of these are from New International Version. Daniel 2. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind, and beasts of the field, and birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. Now that head of gold in the statue described previously in Daniel 2 is the golden head in Daniel's vision that represents Babylonia and Nebuchadnezzar beginning with the top of the statue and working its way down, obviously, to where we end up with, um, with, with Persia. Now, Daniel 7, 14, also from NIV, 
He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, guys, this is the Jewish warrior king that will rise up and lead the nation to one kingdom to never be oppressed again, and one kingdom underneath one Jewish ruler is what they're wanting. Not, not a Babylonian king, not a Syrian king, not a Roman king. They wanted one of their own to bring them all together in unification. That was it. Now, one Enoch, chapter 84, verse 2 says, Blessed are you, O great king. You are mighty in your greatness. O Lord of the creation of heaven, king of kings and God of the whole world, your authority and kingdom abide forever and ever and your dominion throughout all of the generations of generations. All of the heavens are your throne forever, and the whole earth is your footstool forever and ever. Then Enoch makes a request on behalf of the present generation of sinful humans. Basically, those Jews who strayed from God during the days of Hellenization, right? Around a 300-year period. Now, even if the angels... Even if they must come under judgment, like the big giants. Well, Enoch prays that God would allow just for a few humans to survive the devastation of his wrath. He asked God to raise up the righteous and the true flesh as a seed-bearing plant. Enoch chapter 84 verse 6. Within the world of the story, this obviously refers to the world after the flood. And the family of Noah is the righteous family to populate, repopulate the world. We see this in 1 Enoch 10.3, 65.12, and 67.3, which each describe Noah as a preserved seed. But this image of the plant which survives the coming judgment, it also seems to resonate with the description of the righteous man in Isaiah 6.13. Now, at the time 1 Enoch 83 and 84 was written, the final judgment is still coming in the future. The prayer is that God will once again preserve the righteous few in that coming apocalyptic judgment, just like Noah. Now, let's look at Isaiah 6.13. <clears throat> and though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid to waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump remaining in the land. Then in chapter 90, verse 1, we get this, and it goes on and says, And now, my son Methuselah, call to me all your brethren, and assemble for me all the children of your mother. For a voice calls me, and the Spirit is poured out upon me, that I may show you everything which shall happen to you forever. Then in chapter 90, verse 2, Methuselah went out and called to him all of his brethren and assembled his kindred. And then in chapter 90, verse 3, and conversing with all his children in truth. Then we get this in chapter 90, verse 4. And Enoch said, Hear, my children, every word of your father, and listen in uprightness to the voice of my mouth, for I would gain your attention while I address you. My beloved, 
be attached to integrity and walk in it. And then chapter 90, verse 5, Approach not integrity with a double heart, nor be associated with double-minded men. But walk, my children, in righteousness, which will conduct you in good paths, and be truthful to your companions. Now this is where the Apostle Paul gets much of his end-of-times ideas from. And these ideas will be read aloud to his congregations for years to come. Still today, many pastors preach, Be ready, the end of times is near. Now, one, when one Enoch Dreams and Visions was written, it was intended for those who were oppressed by the Syrian Greeks. While Paul is just expecting it to happen any day. So plan for it as if it's coming now. It's coming soon and within his generation. Now, of course, it never happens. And Mark has to fix it 25 to 30 years later. But Mark fucks up too. And Matthew has to fix Mark. Now, when we look at chapter 90, verse 6, it says, For I know that oppression will exist and prevail on earth, that on earth with great punishment shall in the end take place, and that there shall be a consummation of all iniquity, which shall be cut off from its root. And every fabric raised by it shall pass away. Iniquity, however, shall again be renewed and consummated on earth. Every act of crime, and every act of oppression and impiety shall be second time embraced. Then in chapter 90, verse 7, we get this. When therefore iniquity, sin, blasphemy, tyranny, and every evil work shall increase, and when transgression, impiety, and uncleanliness also shall increase, then upon them shall a great punishment be inflicted from heaven. Now, please keep in mind that this author is pretending to be talking about those tribes of Jews sometime before the flood, a couple of thousand years prior, letting them know that oppressive kings will rule the earth for a while, but the Lord will destroy them. This left Jews of the first century, who were reading Enoch and Daniel alike, that the end is imminent especially during the time of the Maccabean Revolt, when millions are dying. Foreign kings are defiling the temple, and the temple priesthood is also corrupted. They were living in evil times. Paul simply was teaching this to his congregations too. Every time there was an abuse of power, the end is near. And I'm sure that Paul, although writing before the Jewish-Roman War, did feel the tension building between the Romans and the Jews of Judea because of the heavy taxation and the regulations. Then he continues with chapter 90, verse 8. The Holy Lord shall go forth in wrath, and upon them all shall great punishment from heaven be inflicted. And then 90, verse 9, I think you see where this guy's going. And the Holy Lord shall go forth in wrath, and with punishment that he may execute judgment upon the earth. And then in 90, verse 10, In those days, oppression shall be cut off from its root, 
and iniquity with fraud shall be eradicated, perishing from under heaven, meaning the corrupted temple cult and the high priest position that was up for sale to the highest bidder. Then in chapter 90, verse 11, every place of strength shall be surrendered with its inhabitants. With fire shall it be burned. They shall be brought from every part of the earth and be cast into a judgment of fire. They shall perish in wrath and by a judgment overpowering them forever. Now, specifically, Greece and Syria. And then in 90 verse 12, Righteousness shall be raised up from slumber and wisdom shall be raised up and conferred upon them. And then in 90 verse 13, Then shall the roots of iniquity be cut off. Sinners perish by the sword, and blasphemers be annihilated everywhere. Pretty self-explanatory, right? Literally, the nations will fall by the sword of the anointed Jewish king or general or Jewish king general. Metaphor for demonstrating the will and the power of God. And then he continues to threaten everyone that he can think of in 90 verse 14. Those who, those who mediate oppression and those who blasphemy and by the sword shall also perish. And then 90 verse 15. And now, my children, I will describe and point out to you the path of righteousness and the path of oppression. Now, it's pretty interesting, setting yourself back into time. When you're looking at biblical texts as a historian, it changes everything, does it not? So now we've already talked about in the beginning of this episode, what was the author seeing, witnessing, hearing about, experiencing, right? It's playing out, and so he knows. So we have the temple cult and its leaders overpowered by foreign leaders, but it's okay because there is wealth involved. And the Syrian Greco kings are actually putting the high priest position up for sale. If you had that high priest position, you're in charge. You're right. You are basically the sheriff of Judea, right? Obviously, you're acting a little bit like a puppet. But that individual, but it's interesting because there's multiple Jewish individuals that were killing each other over having that position. I wasn't too much of being uh, mastered by, you know, um, a hand up the ass. You weren't totally a puppet. You're being paid by the puppet master. That's for damn sure. And But then the other side of the thing is, so that's obviously not taking the path of righteousness, right? That's the path of oppression. And then, and then cleanliness, I'm sure. Then on the other side are the Jews that were enjoying it. They enjoyed they enjoy dealing with the wealth. As we said before, there were 30, 30 Greek cities throughout Judea, right? Universities, theaters, statues everywhere, fountains everywhere representing Zeus and uh, an entire pantheon of gods. It was quite beautiful, I would imagine, right? And then we have the Jews that were not doing as well as those Jews that were you know, so accepting of the, um, you know, guys like Menelaus, right? Guys like Simon. 
And then, obviously, the guys that were following a little bit more of Onias III, who was murdered, well, they didn't take kindly to it. Those are the Jews who would be righteous, following the path of righteousness. They're not following the foreign leaders. They haven't fallen underneath that spell, right? It makes very, very good sense. And so when we talk about these authors, who are they catering to? They're not catering to the powers of the foreign government. These guys didn't even, the author for one Enoch, he didn't want these guys reading this. He didn't want um, Antiochus reading this or his father or any of the other um, members of society that were making money and were elite members. This was written for that group of rural Jews living outside of Judea and possibly even Alexandria, Egypt. Anyway, I digress. And then in chapter 90, verse 16, Enoch goes off and says, I will again point them out to you that you may know what is to come. 90.17, Hear now, my children, and walk in the path of their righteousness, but shun that of oppression. For all who walk in the path of iniquity shall perish forever. Dun, dun, dun. Right? Now keep in mind, these guys were not cave-dwelling sheepherders. This particular guy right here, he read all the works of Homer, he read the Odyssey, he read the Iliad, he read all the works and poetry of Hesiod, all the, all the great Greeks. Yes, this guy has read all of the work. And he uses the same type of mythological writing that the Greeks used for centuries, at least as late as 800 BCE. And writing in myth, as we're talking about, I talk a lot about it on my TikTok account, is that writing about two different scenarios, two different pieces of um, history. They could be a decade apart, 100 years apart, several hundred years apart. And then changing some of the things around, changing the dates and the players. But the outcome, the difference of the outcome, is what the story is all about. So obviously this author is talking about present time Syria, right? The oppression of the temple cult. But he takes it and he's trying to relate it to the Jews prior to the flood that were disobeying God, right? Talk about the golden calf and all that kind of stuff. So it's interesting the way that these guys wrote. In Enoch's second vision is a dream which recounts a majority of narratives that are all found in the Hebrew Bible. However, in this vision, all the characters are played by animals, some stars, and heavenly beings. Now, from a historical perspective, I think this is important because it sheds light on the interpretive practices in strands of early Jewish practice and belief during the Second Temple period prior to the new millennia. Now, likewise, it provides us a key to understanding the conceptual framework and symbolic meanings of various things from the time period and the social groups that existed at the time. Now, what this author does with allegory, it's actually pretty interesting because of how he employs the use of animals in the second dream vision. He uses them as an allegorical account of the history of Israel that uses animals to represent human beings, while human beings 
are represented as angels. Now, the color of the animals is really, really important to this author because white animals represent moral and purity, while black represents sin and contamination of the fallen angels. And then red animals represent blood in reference to martyrdom. Now, in the story or in the dream, the white bull is Adam and the female heifer is Eve. The red calf is Abel, who is martyred by Cain, and the black calf is Cain, as he represents sin, while the white calf is Seth, who represents purity. Additionally, in the narrative, the white bull slash man is, of course, the morally pure Noah, and the white bull is Shem, the red bull would be Ham, the son of Noah, of course, and the black sinful bull is Japheth. And then the Lord of the sheep is clearly God. And then the fallen star is either Saimaza or Azazel, the two angels who revolted against God and corrupted all of humanity. And then we have elephants that are giants and camels that are the Nephilim. And we also have sheep that represent the faithful Jews who actually fought against the system and the Syrians and tried to regain control and authority over the temple and what religion should be taught, what gods should be worshipped. And rams are the leaders, such as Judas Maccabeus, while the herds are the tribes of Israel. Wild asses are Ishmael and his descendants, including the Midianites. Wild boars are Esau and his descendants, Edom and Amalek. Bears, hyenas, and wolves are the Egyptians. Dogs are the Philistines. Tigers are the Arithmetia. Hyenas are the Assyrians. Ravens or crows are Seleucids or the Syrians. And the Ketites are the Ptolemies. Eagles are possibly the Macedonians. And foxes are the Ammonites and the Moabites. Now, one of the most intriguing aspects of the dream visions, at least for myself, is how the demons are represented in the recounting of the primeval history found in Genesis 1 through 11, as in Enoch 85, 1 through 87. Now, within chapter 85, the main animals are cows and bulls. Now, what each bovid represents depends on how it connects to Genesis chapters 1 through 11 and the color ascribed to it within one Enoch. In chapter 86, though, the demons are described as turning into bovids. I saw many stars descending and casting themselves down from the sky upon that first star. And they became bovids among those calves and were pastured together with them in their midst. Now, essentially, the demons are fallen angels and begin in a non-material, divine, and heavenly form. The only way they can interact with the bovids are through looking like bovids. Yet, there's something monstrous about these star-turned bovids. I kept observing, and behold... I saw all of them extending their sexual organs like horses and commencing to mount upon the heifers, the bovids. Now, because most people are not farmers, including myself, well, this statement just sounds fucking weird. 
But when we examine the biology of these animals, well, it brings a new light to the monstrosity of the demons and their huge cocks. Because compared to a bull, the penis of a horse enlarges more because it has a lot of extra erectile tissue relative to connective tissue. I learned that on Wikipedia under penises. So, so for the person experienced with working with animals, the idea of a bovid with such a large sexual organ would seem unnatural and monstrous. Hey, that demon's hung like a horse. Enoch continues this monstrous description as he reveals the results of the mating between the demon bovids and their heifers. They all became pregnant and bore elephants, camels, and donkeys. <laughs> so, rather than bearing more bovids, the mating results in the birth of elephants, camels, and donkeys instead. Naturally, the unnatural occurrence is the result of the monstrosity of the demon bulls. It serves to reemphasize the monstrous nature of the demon bulls. And in each instance, namely their changing from stars, fallen angels, into bulls, having sexual organs like horses, and mating resulting in non-bovids, serve to emphasize the sheer unnatural and monstrous elements of the demons within the dream visions. And there seems to be a large amount of links between the first book, being the Watchers, and this one here although placed number four within the chronology of the books, including the outline of the story and the imprisonment of the leaders and the destruction of the Nephilim. Now, the dream includes several sections relating to the Book of Watchers. We get verses like this. And those 70 shepherds were judged and found guilty, and they were cast into that fiery abyss. And I saw that time, how like an abyss was open in the midst of the earth, full of fire. And they brought those blinded sheep, which would be representative of the fall of the evil ones. And all of the oxen feared them and were affrightened at them and began to bite with their teeth and to devour and to gore with their horns. And they began, moreover, to devour those oxen. And behold, all the children of the earth began to tremble and quake before them and to flee from them, which was the creation of the Nephilim. And then chapters 86, verse 4, chapter 87, verse 3, chapter 88, verse 2, and 89, verse 6, all describe the types of Nephilim that are created during the times described in the book of the Watchers. Though this doesn't mean that the author of both books are the same guy because similar references exist also in the book of Jubilees, chapter 7, 21 through 22 as well. Then the book goes on and describes the release from the ark after the flood, along with three bulls, one that was white, one that was red, and one, one that was black, which represent, which we just talked about, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then in chapter 90, verse 9, it also covers the death of Noah, described as the white bull and man, and the creation of many nations. And they began to bring forth beasts of all the fields and birds, so that there arose different genoa, 
lions, tigers, wolves, dogs, hyenas, wild boars, foxes, squirrels, swine, falcons, vultures, uh, kittites, eagles, and ravens. As seen in chapter 90, verse 10. It then goes and describes the story of Moses and Aaron in chapter 90, verses 13 through 15, including the miracle of the river splitting in two for them to be able to pass and creation of the stone commandments. Eventually, they arrive at a pleasant and glorious land, as seen in chapter 90, verse 40, where they were attacked by dogs, or Philistines, and foxes, Ammonites, and Moabites, and wild boars, basically Esau. And then we get this quote, And that the sheep whose eyes were opened saw that ram, which was amongst the sheep, till it forsook its glory and began to butt those sheep and trampled upon them and behaved itself unseemly. And the Lord of the sheep sent the lamb to another lamb and raised it to being a ram and leader of the sheep instead of that ram which had forsaken its glory. The story then goes on to describe the creation of Solomon's temple and also the house which may be the tabernacle as well. And a quote says, And that house became great and broad, and it was built for those sheep. And a tower, lofty and great walls, was built on the house for the Lord of the sheep. And that house was low, but the tower was elevated and lofty. And the Lord of the sheep stood on that tower, and they offered a full table before him. And then it also describes the escape of Elijah the prophet from 1 Kings chapter 17 verses 2 through 4. He is fed by ravens. So if kings use similar analogy, he may have been fed by the Seleucids. Now, saw the Lord of the sheep, how he wrought much slaughter amongst them in their herd until those sheep invited that slaughter and betrayed his place. Now, this describes the various tribes of Israel inviting in other pagan nations, betraying his place. For example, the land promised to their ancestors by God in the Old Testament scriptures, as well as the temple that became the temple cult. This is clearly a reference to the Hellenization of the temple cult and the people of Judea that accepted the pantheon of Greek gods and their traditions, and specifically Antiochus IV in 200 BCE, with all the allusions to all invading foreign powers. Now, if you wanted to, and some scholars consider, this part of the book can be taken as the kingdom of Judea splitting into the northern and the southern tribes, that is, Israel and Judea. Now, eventually, leading to Israel falling to the Assyrians in 721 BCE, and of Judah falling to the Babylonians is a little over a century later in 587 BCE. And we get, And he gave them over to the hands of the lions and the tigers and wolves and the hyenas and into the hands of the foxes and to all the wild beasts and those wild beasts began to tear in pieces those sheep. God abandons Israel, for they have abandoned him. 
there is also a mentioning of 59 of 70 shepherds with their own seasons. Now, there seems to be some debate of the meaning of this section, and some suggest that it's a reference to the 70 appointed times in um, chapter 25, verse 11, as well as 9, verse 2, and 1, verse 12. And another interpretation is the 70 weeks in Daniel's 9, verse 24. However, the general interpretation is that these are simply angels. This section, this section of the book, and another section near the end describe the appointment by God of the 70 angels to protect the Israelites from, the, from enduring too much harm from the beast and the birds. And then the later section in chapter 110.14 describes how the 70 angels are judged for causing more harm to Israel than what God desired. They were found guilty and cast into an abyss full of fire and flaming, and full of pillars of fire. Oh my! And the lions and the tigers eat and devoured the greater part of those sheep. And the wild boars eat along with them. And they burnt that tower and demolished that house. Now this clearly represents the sacking of Solomon's temple and the tabernacle in Jerusalem and probably a reference to the Babylonians as they take Judea in 587 and 586 BCE, exiling the remaining Jews. And forthwith I saw how the shepherd pastured for twelve hours. And behold, three of those sheep turned back and came and entered and began to build up all that had fallen down of that house. Now, this is probably Cyrus who allowed Shashzabar, who was a, a prince from the tribe of Judea, to bring the Jews from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Jews were allowed to return with the temple vessels that the Babylonians had actually taken in the beginning. Then construction of the second temple began. This represents the history of the ancient Israel and Judea up to the point that the temple was completed in the year 515 BCE. Now, the first part of the next section of the book seems, at least according to Western scholars anyway, to clearly describe the Maccabean revolt of 167 BCE against the Seleucid Empire. And the following two quotes I have altered from the original form to make the hypothetical meaning of the animal names a lot clearer. And so here we begin. And I saw in the vision how the Seleucids flew upon those faithful and took one of those lambs and dashed the sheep in pieces and devoured them. And I saw till horns grew upon those lambs and the Seleucids cast down their horns. And I saw till there sprouted a great horn of one of those faithful and their eyes were suddenly opened. And it looked at them, and their eyes opened. And it cried to the sheep. And the ram saw it and ran to it. And notwithstanding all of those Macedonians and vultures and Seleucids and Ptolemies still kept tearing the sheep and swooping down upon them and devouring them. Still the sheep remained silent, but the rams lamented and cried out, and those Seleucids fought and battled with it 
and sought to lay low its horns, but they had no power over it. Chapter 109, verses 8 through 12. Then we have this. All the Macedonians and vultures and Seleucids and Ptolemies were gathered together. And there came with them all the sheep of the field. Yea, they all came together and helped each other to break that horn of the ram. Chapter 110, verse 16. So if you've been following along with the podcast, specifically the Second Temple Judaism and the Hellenization of the Temple cult, this very first sentence clearly refers to the death of the high priest Onias III, whose murder is described in 1 Maccabees 333-35, who died in 171 BCE. And then the great horn. Well, it's clearly not Mattathias, the initiator of the rebellion, because he dies of a natural death, as described in 1 Maccabees 2.49. It's also not Alexander the Great, as the great horn is interpreted as a warrior who has fought the Macedonians, the Seleucids, and the Ptolemies. Judas Maccabeus, 167 BCE to 160 BCE, fought all three of these with a large number of victories against the Seleucids over a great period of time. They had no power over it. He is also described as the one great horn among six others on the head of a lamb, possibly referring to Maccabeus' five brothers and Mattathias. If taken in context of the history of the, um, of the Maccabees time, the explanation of verse 13 can be found in 1 Maccabees 7 verse 52. So in Maccabees 8 as well as 13, 14, and 1 Maccabees 41, 42, and 2 Maccabees 8. Now Maccabeus was eventually killed by the Seleucids at the Battle of Elasa, where he faced 20,000 foot soldiers and 2,000 cavalry. At one time, it was believed this passage might refer to John Hyrcanus as well. The only reason for this was that the time between Alexander the Great and John Maccabeus was too short. However, it has been asserted that evidence shows that this section does indeed refer to Judas Maccabeus, who dies on the battlefield. It then describes this. And I saw till a great sword was given to the sheep, and the sheep proceeded against all the beasts of the field to slay them. And all the beasts and the birds of heaven fled before their face. Now this is probably simply representing the power of God. God was with them to avenge the death. And may also be Jonathan Hephaestus taking over command of the rebels, to battle on after the death of Judas, who lies dead on the battlefield. And John Hyrcanus, Hyrcanus I from the Hasmonean dynasty, may also make an appearance. The passage that goes, And all that had been destroyed and dispersed, and all the beasts of the field, and all the birds of the heaven, assembled in that house, and the Lord of the sheep rejoiced with great joy, because they were all good and had returned to his house. Now, this may describe John Hyrcanus' reign as the time of the great peace and prosperity. 
Now, certain scholars also claim Alexander Janius of Judea is also alluded to in the book from 90 BCE. Then the end of the book describes the new Jerusalem, concluding with a birth of a Messiah, Enoch. And I saw that a white bull was born with large horns, and all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air feared him and made petition to him all the time. And I saw till all their generations were transformed, and they all became white bulls. And the first among them became a lamb, and that lamb became a great animal and had great black horns on its head. And the Lord of the sheep rejoiced over it and over all the oxen. This white bull being born is what Christians believe is a prophecy about Jesus Christ our Lord. Unfortunately, as we covered in the last episode, God told Enoch to his face that he was, in fact, the Son of Man, who will be responsible for judging the living and the dead come Judgment Day. Also, this author seems to follow the same line of thinking as Daniel, that a shoot or someone with the seed of David He's basically a powerful Jewish king that would lead the people of Israel to rise up and destroy their oppressors once and for all. Daniel speaks of a great warrior that will ultimately bring peace after a 490 years of a 490 year period of destruction and desolation. Where Enoch speaks much of the same language while using animals to represent his characters. It seems that this author was inspired by reading Aesop's fables, written maybe a couple of centuries prior to Enoch. Aesop wrote in Greek, which also helps demonstrate that this author wrote during the Second Temple generation, the second generation Hellenistic period when Jews were attending Greek universities. But the fables describe and even condemn common varieties of misbehavior especially greed, hypocrisy, vanity, and deceit. But two salient features set the fable apart from other forms of moralizing literature. The drawing out of an explicit message in the form of a moral, and the use of animals, especially talking animals, as the protagonist. Just like the donkey and the snake in the Hebrew Bible, which also clearly demonstrate that even Genesis was written during the Hellenistic period, or at least its later redactions anyway. It also demonstrates that those authors also read and wrote in Greek, as well as Aramaic and Hebrew. So sorry, haters, these guys were not cave-dwelling sheep herders. Why do animals feature so prominently and Aesop's fable. And why do they talk? According to our ancient sources, the fable's use of animals primarily served to underscore the fictionality and the lightness of those stories. The risability of the humanized animals allows the fable to make its point without boring or insulting an addressee. So basically, slamming people politically without them necessarily knowing it. 
So it follows, while calling someone a jackass might reasonably cause offense. Where fable tellers like Enoch or Aesop can be more effective and more politically correct by offering advice or criticism through a made-up story. This, more than likely, is exactly what the author for Enoch was doing as well. Now, still, there's another interpretation which has just as much credibility. It's that the last chapter of this section may actually refer to the infamous Battle of Armageddon, where all the nations of the world march against Israel and the Jews. Now, this interpretation is supported by the War Scroll, which describes what this epic battle may look like, according to the groups that existed in Qumran. So we'll start off with chapter, tw or, yeah, chapter 28, or verse 28, excuse me. And I stood up to see till they folded up that house and carried off all the pillars and all the beams and ornaments of the house were at the same time folded up with it. And they carried it off and laid it in a place in the south of the land. And then verse 29. And I saw till the Lord of the sheep brought a new house greater and loftier than the first, and set it up in place of the first which had been folded up. All its pillars were new, and its ornaments were new, and larger than those of the first. The old one, which he had taken away, and all the sheep were within it. Verse 90, And I saw the sheep which had been left, and all the beasts on the earth, and all the birds of heaven falling down, and doing homage to those sheep and making petitions to and avoiding and avoiding excuse me obeying them in everything thirty one and thereafter those three who were clothed in white and had seized me by my hands who had taken me up before and the hands of that ram also seizing hold of me they took me up and set me down in the midst of those sheep before the judgment took place. And those sheep were all white, and their wool was abundant and clean. 33. And all that had been destroyed and dispersed, and all the beasts of the field, and all the birds of the heaven, assembled in that house. And the Lord of the sheep rejoiced with great joy, because they were all good and had returned to his house. 34. And I still saw, till they laid down that sword, which had given to the sheep, and they brought it back to the house. And it was sealed before the presence of the Lord, and the sheep were invited into that house. But it held them not. 35. And the eyes of them were opened, and they saw the good. And there was not one among them that did not see. 36. And I saw that that house was large and broad and very full. And 37. And I saw that a white bull was born with large horns. And all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air feared him and made petition to him at the time. 38. And I saw till all the generations were transformed and they all became white bulls. And the first among them became a lamb. And that lamb became a great animal and had a great black horns on its head. And the Lord of the sheep rejoiced 
over it and all over the oxen. 39. And I slept in their midst. And I awoke and I saw everything. 40. This is the vision which I saw while I slept. And I awoke and blessed the Lord of righteousness and gave him glory. 41. Then I wept with a great weeping and my tears stayed not till I could no longer endure it. When I saw they had flowed on account of what I had seen, for everything shall come and be fulfilled. And all the deeds of men in their order were shown to me. 42. On that night I remembered the first dream, and because of it I wept and was troubled, because I had seen that vision. So in a nutshell, that is Enoch's book of dreams. And I wanted to share it because it does reveal many thoughts, ideas, feelings, and emotions that the Jews had during the Second Temple period when they had no control of the temple and foreign powers continued to oppress the people of Judea. I think that it's actually quite beautifully written in its weird and strange ways. But at the end of the day, we can start to see how the evolution of a messianic figure would develop, especially into what we have today. Again, this literature, it was in circulation during Paul's time, and he certainly talked about it, and he certainly drew from it. And more than likely, it was a standard in his congregations. He drew from it among other pagan and Hebrew literature in order to create what his Messiah would be. Specifically in a time when there were numerous messiahs emerging. Some peaceful, some asking for war, some antagonizing the Romans. Right? Some siding with the Syrians, some wanting to break away, breaking away from God. But ultimately at the end of the day, I think we can see the beginning of the evolution of the Messiah. From what we get in Old Testament scripture, right? I think Daniel kind of gets it kick-started, and there's some 60 references to a Messiah, um, or at least an anointed one. Messiah just means somebody who is anointed, right? Specifically, um, it could be office. All Christians automatically want to connect it to God. It could be the high priest anointing a Messiah to go and do some paperwork and clean the office. But when the Messianic movement kicked off in the second century of BCE, during a time of turmoil or desolation, right? You can imagine there's a lot of examples. You can think of people living in countries where it is being oppressed by a foreign nation. And there's nothing they can do about it. They can't afford to leave or do anything different. All they know is their God's been stripped away from them and they're required to follow other laws and worship other gods. Apply that to yourself today and kind of think about what they were thinking. They imagined somebody who was going to come that looked like them, sounded like them, talked like them, understood them, understood the Torah, understood the Yahweh God, the God of the Jews and wanted to bring the land back to their proper ownership by way of this Jewish leader. In most eyes, it was a general 
riding on a big white stallion or a big white bovine, yielding a sword, approved by God, the Lord of the sheep. Right? That's what we're getting down to. And then finally, Jesus' character emerges out of these stories. Some oral, many written down, probably fragments and bits and pieces about some of these messiahs that were numerous and all around. Paul probably pulled from many of these guys. Oh, I like that. Oh, I like this. Oh, I like that. I like what that guy did. And taking stories from these guys. Exaggeration, embellishment, creating stories about somebody that's, you know, fulfilling these prophecies. Stories become to be built and imagined and spread. We all know how that happens, right? Anyway, 2,000 years later, we're still building stories about this guy. And, you know, and now we want to make, you know, an ex-president look like this guy. Anyway, that's all I've got. I hope you really enjoyed this particular episode. I hope you've been enjoying the series. And guys, um, I'm getting ready to go camping. I'm getting over COVID. Take care.